We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala and we seek blessings on the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So believe it or not, we've actually completed the first half of Al-Fatiha, most of which, almost all of which was about Allah and Allah in relation to us, who is Allah to us. And so we spoke of connecting to Allah by way of his names. <clears throat> by way of hamd of Allah, and there it's a, a, it includes recitation of, of his names out of praise for him, as well as being in awe of him by way of being awe, in awe of his creation. And so uh, now we're adding the other two aspects, and that is ibadah and, and isti'an. And so once again, let me... Let's see if I get this whiteboard to work. All right, y'all see the whiteboard? Uh, let me know you can see it. Okay, good. So, so the middle ish ayah of Al Fatiha says, You alone we worship. And you alone we ask for help. So worship, as you know, is ibadah, and the more literal translation we gave before, which is to give your most extreme love. And so what is the connection between the two? That you are expressing such love that you are, what's the word? Uh, you're in complete surrender. And then this is Istan. Okay, so first, just some structural uh, 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 points. It follows that we surrender to God because the previous ayah spoke of God as master, right? It follows that we seek from help from God because the ayahs before that kept speaking of him as, as the most merciful, as well as the guide, uh, uh, the rub uh, of, of, of everything. So structurally, it fits that way. And then now, this is the first time we're directly speaking about us, but the point I wanted you to consider is that usually when we think of the names of Allah, we think of the names of Allah in a vacuum, which is not incorrect. It is still correct that when we speak of Allah as Al-Khaliq, the creator, he is a creator whether or not we exist. He's a creator whether or not he has created anything. Yeah. But what do these names give us? They also give us how uh, methods and how to perceive of, how to conceive of Allah in relationship to us. So in a vacuum, Allah is most in Rahmah. But it, why is this important to me? He is most in Rahmah to me of all the different places, all the different ways I can receive Rahmah. And so now we are turning our attention to him. Further, some other grammatical points. Uh, when you see the iyaka, that's essentially you alone, it's exclusivity. Okay. Iyaka, and then we have na'budu, and then iyaka nasta'in. So we have you alone, you alone. 
And then what this also means is that each half, so this is half number one, half number two, each half has four simultaneous meanings. Okay. You alone do I worship, you alone will I worship. I do not worship anyone else. I will not worship anyone else. All four of those meanings are built in to, to this first half. And then likewise for the second half, you alone, I do ask for help, meaning from you alone, I do ask for help. Uh, from you alone, I will ask for help. I do not ask for help from anyone else. I will not ask for help from anyone else. So the present and the future and the negation of any other possibilities in the present and the future. You alone I do, you alone I will, I will not with anyone else, I do not with anyone else. Yeah. So <clears throat> this is the key way with which to develop your relationship with Allah. Yeah, awesome. Um, is the point you just made a theological point or like, is this true in Arabic across the board? So this is, this is Arabic grammar. Okay. And then, and then it's, you, you raise a wonderful question because Arabic grammar will then cause theological, uh, uh, will then have theological consequences. Yeah. So I'm just giving you straight Arabic, basic Arabic grammar, because if I just wanted to say, you know, you, I worship or you, we worship, we would say, not buduka. And that could be the whole line. But this is iyaka, not budu. And then the not budu, this imperfect form, is present and future. And so if I only want to make it future, I would say something like iyaka sanabudu. And iyaka sanastain, something like that. So yeah, this is this is just a straight up grammatical point that has obvious theological consequences. Uh, any other questions uh, uh, about about this screen before we, we add on to it? Okay. Another point that I want to draw our attention to is we. So in many different philosophies, including economic philosophies and cultural philosophies, you are often either leaning towards being an I or being towards a we. So for example, in some cultures, there isn't much concept of an I, right? And in many of the tribalist uh, uh, outlooks, it's all we. Yeah. And so here, even if I'm alone, I'm saying we, right? You alone, we worship you alone, we ask for help. And we find this over and over again. We find this over and over again. So the point to consider is that you are always an I, who will be facing Allah alone, 100% completely alone on the day of judgment. And you're in this dunya, always a we. And so what is the we referring to? It is the Ummah. So now we're introducing this third population. First we have Allah, then we have me, and now we have the, the Ummah. And of course, there's the Prophet, peace be upon him, who I've also been speaking about in the context of the mercy of Allah. And so, from the perspective of relationships, and some of you, again, this is review for some of you, uh, how I perceive of Allah 
speaks more about me than about Allah. But there is part of a hadith narration where Allah Ta'ala himself is being quoted as saying, I am what my servant thinks of me. So back to this point about authenticity we were making when we were speaking about struggle. Even this question of authenticity is something we want to have in terms of how we perceive of how we conceive of Allah. So I might tell you Allah is most merciful, but what do I honestly believe in my heart? And that's going to include how I feel about Allah, how I feel what Allah's assessment of me is. And so the most common attribute Actually, it's not the right word. The most common description that undergrads, that 20-year-olds give me when they are speaking about what Allah thinks of them or what they think of Allah is punisher or abandoned or absent. And so ask yourself, how, where, what do you think of Allah in your heart? Because the consequence of that is that will inform how you look at everything that happens in your life. That will inform how you see the world at a given moment. So when we're doing the gratitude exercise, part of the point of the gratitude exercise is to take control of these things that we <clears throat> that we often passively do, meaning we passively have an opinion of a law. With the gratitude exercise, now you're making it, you're taking control of it. And so if you truly see a law as pouring mercy upon you over and over again, that is going to impact how you look at everything in your life. And so another personal test is when do you think of the Ummah, what do you think of it? That speaks more about you than about the Ummah. So even if we were just to speak of Chicago alone, uh, probably at least two thirds of you are in the Chicagoland area. Uh, We have every single type of Muslim. And what I focus on is then gonna indicate something more about me. So if I think of the ummah as a bunch of crooks, as a bunch of lazy people, yeah, we have those people, obviously. If I think of the ummah as as people who are humble and trying their best, we have that too. If I think of the ummah as a bunch of, of people who excel in whatever they do, we have those people too. And so, Ask yourself, what do you passively think of when you think of the ummah? Because very often in, in you know, American Islam, which is effectively usually suburban Islam and such, there's often a lot of condescension towards the ummah, a lot of insulting towards the ummah. But you have to look at yourself as being inseparable from the ummah to the point, what is the root word of the word ummah? Easy question. Get rid of the A-H. Um, yeah. Um, right, right. Um, and so, so what does that mean? It's connecting with mother. And so what is the idea here that you also have to see the ummah as your root that you have planted you know, uh, yourself within. Now, of course, we can have the exceptional situation where people feel the need to separate from the ummah for their own well-being. And an example of that are the young people of the cave um, who decide, all right, we can't be around here because we're gonna be too corrupted. And so they go fall asleep in the cave for 300 years. That is also reality. But generally speaking, very often our criticism of the ummah is our own imagination. Very often our criticism, our our condescension of the ummah 
is more self-loathing. And so, so what are we saying here? How I perceive of Allah speaks about me and has consequences on how I look at the world. And how I perceive of the Ummah speaks about me and has consequences in terms of how I conduct myself. So <clears throat> having laid out this foundation, uh, let's see, chat box. Okay, how large of a scale are we talking about when you talk about the Ummah? Uh, that's entirely up to you. And so think back to these circles of, of relationships. And so somewhere you have to have the Ummah. And you could perhaps do uh, you could perhaps do a whole Ummah. And then you may do Chicago Ummah. Uh, a little bit closer to you. That's uh, somewhat arbitrary, but ultimately it does include the entire Roma. Now, I also have to introduce a concept that I find to be very, very destructive that some of you might be familiar with. And for the most part, except in names, I've been avoiding giving terminology, but this is a point I have to draw attention to. Wala, bara. And so the idea of this term, has anyone heard of this term? Is this familiar to anybody? Okay. It's there, you'll find it uh, more in conservative circles. And the idea basically here is that you give your loyalty to the Ummah and immunity from non-Muslims. And, and so this is a term that has some roots, you know, going back centuries, but it's still a fringe concept. But what is the idea here? The idea here is that you look at the Ummah as a tribe and your loyalty is to the Ummah. And the first problem, or any, any of you, what would you suggest are some benefits as well as some weaknesses of this approach? Anyone? While I, while I fiddle with this thing. Awesome. Uh, oh, the, the, uh, what you just, the way you said it, at least it sounds rife for abuse, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's obvious I'm not a fan, but what would be yeah. ways for to abuse it? Well, I mean, it's, it's like the thing about like closing ranks around people who do wrong and trying to sort of deal with them yourself as opposed to letting whatever justice system exists take its course. And, and you know, people who were here yesterday maybe know I'm a little bit sensitive about this right now, but it feels like a police union uh, type of mentality, right? You close ranks, there's a blue line. Yeah, so you prefer the tribe over justice. That's the fundamental problem. Okay. Meaning if justice requires you to go to legitimately requires you to go against the entire Oman, that's what you have to do, right? I don't know what hypothetical situation that would possibly be, but uh, yeah. What would be a benefit of this approach? Because I also don't want to just throw it away because uh, people do uh, believe in it. You are, yeah, go ahead, Awesome. 
um, uh, that it makes you responsible for the actions and well-being of your brother or sister. Yeah. So you do have then concern for the Uma. The point is you want to have both. You want to concern for the Uma and justice. Uh, Omar, are you speaking? I can point out, like, what does that actually mean in terms of defining what the Uma is and, like, what the priorities should be? Is that, you know what I'm saying? It's, it can be, it's a little bit broad and vague in what that really, what that really means. What is the yeah, yeah. Because uh, the the risk then becomes that everything becomes a conspiracy against the Ummah. Now, so Mirza is saying, doesn't the Quran specifically say, "Judge with truth, even if against it being your own selves"? Absolutely. And they would push back by saying the Quran also says, "Do not take awliya." From the people of the book, and literally, that's where this uh, this uh, this term comes from. And so, so the approach becomes: which one takes superiority? And I'm of the school that justice takes superiority over over tribalism. Okay. Any questions about any of this so far? So, now winding down uh, Al Fatiha. We are then asking Allah, we are making a request. Okay. Guide us on the straight path. Okay. So I mentioned that a primary method with which so, to have a relationship with Allah is worship. Somebody was just speaking? Yeah, this is Malahat. Yes, sir. Uh, I have a question. So what is the what is the definition of just? Uh, is the just is what is deen describe you are just or is the law of the land? So uh, that's, a, that's a, a fair question. Uh, uh, it depends if it's a contradiction. Okay, no, no, let me, let me take a step back. Very rarely does the law of the land actually focus on justice. The law of the land usually focuses on social order. Okay. And, and so justice and the law of the land, including often crime and punishment are often two different things. So, so even in Sharia, Sharia, the goal, Sharia is not here to provide you with justice. The essence of Sharia is to provide you with stability. And so this especially became an issue in the, in the rise of the, of the so-called uh, Arab Spring. You had all of these fuqaha, including very, very big scholars speak against uh, rebellion against the government because the core philosophy of Islamic law is that you take stability, even if it is an oppressive stability. And so, so law and justice are not necessarily the same thing. Yeah, but, but isn't that I'm talking about more like a Western atmosphere base, like where we live in, like in, in Chicagoland area. And uh, give me an example then, like a hypothetical example. No, I, I just need to unpack a little bit more. So, um, when you said, when we says Sharia yeah. and, and the law of the land, so one who need to be saying, I'm, I need to just between that and take a side, we do need to know about the both side of the, the parameters, right? Okay. We, have to, we have to know about the Sharia compliant, what does the Sharia mean in that specific case? 
we have to know what is the law of the land says in that specific case. So we have to make up our mind in after that, rather than we can just uh, watch some news or hear something and get bias overview. So, so I, yeah, keep going. So, so I'm just, I'm just want to be sensitive about it that, you know, we cannot just uh, take that learning and then apply for every thought process is coming over way. Yeah, sure. Uh, but I'm still trying to think of a case where uh, uh, there would be a contradiction or overlap in terms of justice versus tribalism. I mean, one way to think about this is, okay, if I know someone has done something wrong, and I'm in America, and I decide, okay, we already get so much attention against us, you know, because of Islamophobia and terrorism, why do I want to draw more attention against us? And so then I remain silent on this person's crimes. And so that's tribalism, regardless of the law, as opposed to drawing attention to this person, this person's uh, crimes and such. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, sort of. Yeah, uh, I think, I, I mean, I see what you're, you're, you're doing. You're trying to develop like a theoretical framework, but what I'm uh, uh, suggesting is that it's hard to do that uh, without giving specific, you know. Yeah, I'm, I'm just, yeah no, no, I'm, I'm just trying to be cognizant that, you know, we cannot make up our framework without knowing the truth. So ultimate reality or ultimate truth, we need to find that. Then we need to put that truth into see where the law of the land is doing, what's supposed to be done, and what is the Sharia is providing, supposed to provide. And then we can just create that framework and see if they both are aligned, then Alhamdulillah. If it's not, then we have to take a side. Yeah, and that's the part where I'm um, asking, you know, what would be an example where we have two different things, you know. Right. More often than not, you might be defaulting to the, to the law of the land if it's, if it's a major crime because you can't take the law into your own hands, meaning someone commits murder, then you can't do your own execution of them, right? right. There, you're going to have to go to to the, the law of the society. Uh, Asim is asking, how do we move away from oppressive stability towards just stability without unrest or revolution? So, so the key point I'm making uh, there is that Islamic law is not designed for justice. Islamic law is not designed for uh, social change. Like it's not in its capability. It would be like saying, you're going to a cardiologist to have a revolution in society. It's just not in its realm. And so, so stability, uh, to your question, Neil, for stability would basically be status quo. Uh, uh, <clears throat> and so Islamic law on the collective will often default towards a status quo, even if it is an oppressive status quo. If the other option is, is uh, instability in society. And, and so uh, what that also means is that also often Islamic law will allow things even at the individual level that might be otherwise forbidden. So for, for the purpose of stability in the population. So example, you know, we had the example yesterday of, of riba. And so <clears throat> you will find many, many scholars who are saying, yeah, you can get, you can get a mortgage because the other consequence of not allowing mortgages is, is, a, is a bigger problem. 
you know, even though the language against the ribha is so fierce in the Quran. Okay. So, uh, but again, what, what, uh, what is the overall focus we're making here is that your primary methods that you want to aspire to in having a relationship with the law is surrender. So we spoke about love languages. The love language of Allah is, is found in this hadith where Allah Ta'ala says that I love nothing more than when my servant performs the fard actions, the fara'id. And then the servant gets closer to me by performing the nafal actions. And until I become the eyes with which he sees, the hand with which, with the, the hand with which he strikes, the feet with which he walks, so forth and so on. But a key to reinforcing that is to ask for help. And so I made the point the other day to look at dua as a currency and make it your practice that anytime you hear of or you see anyone in any sort of a struggle, complete stranger or somebody you know very well, make a really fast dua for them. Anything and everything. You see somebody struggling to walk, make a prayer for them. You see someone who's a thousand years old, make a prayer for them. Anybody in any uh, type of situation, make a quick prayer for them. And it's literally the equivalent of going to a field and planting seeds and forgetting that you've done it. And, and that is then also reinforcing this notion of we. So especially do it for, for uh, Muslims, but if you do it 100% for everybody, alhamdulillah, that's even better. Okay. <clears throat> now, where'd my screen go? So we're saying guide us on the straight path. Uh, awesome. So you just said, especially do it for Muslims. Uh, when in, in the circles you drew, when you said eventually it's the whole ummah, wouldn't that then include everybody on the planet ultimately? Yeah, I mean, so, so we would add another ring out here. Humanity, another ring out here, you know, life itself. Okay. In terms of the further, the further outer rings. Naturally, there might be some people who get along with their trees better than they get along with their siblings. But, you know, but as a general principle, if you can try to default to human beings. Okay. So first, uh, some of the basic questions. When we see the term straight path, you know, uh, what do we infer from this term? One is that there's a destination. Another is that there's movement towards the destination. Another is that there are incorrect or crooked paths. Straight path is also the fastest direct path. So one point I made is how you imagine a law will affect how you react, how you regard reality itself. How you regard the ummah is giving you more of a sense of your psychology than the ummah itself. Third big point, how you imagine Islam 
It is going to influence how you practice Islam. If you see Islam as we teach it too often in Sunday schools, this big, giant, clunky thing with all of these impossible rules, that's how it's going to play in your mind when Ramadan comes along, because it means that in the weeks leading up to Ramadan, you're going to think, okay, I can't do this. I don't know if I can make it this year. I've made it for 30 years in a row, but I don't know if I can do it this year. Uh, or if you picture Islam the way you picture fitness, like, all right, I have to control my diet on these matters, and I have to go through the, uh, the, the struggle of exercise for a certain amount of time a day, and in the short term, it's struggle leading me to long-term comfort. That's a different approach. Now you're looking at Islam as something that takes effort, but is beneficial, and you really feel that it's beneficial. And then if you keep going back to the gym, you start enjoying going back to the gym. And if you keep eating kashi and cilantro and such, and then you start to actually enjoy all those things, right? But the point is that how you perceive of Islam is going to affect how you practice it. And then the bigger point that I keep emphasizing is that the part of, of your understanding of Allah, the understanding of the Ummah, the understanding of Islam that you lie to yourself about, your kids are gonna see to see through your lies. And so here we are taught to look at Islam as the straight path and think of all that's involved with the straight path. Yeah, Ahant. Assalamu alaikum. Um, Wa alaikum assalam, my brother in al-Islam. Yes. <laughs> so, um, oh, by the way, by the way, I'm going to interrupt you again. You all heard that story about uh, the convert who, who would come to me, you know, because he, uh, you know, had questions about Islam and then uh, you know, he's getting ready to take his shahada and he's asking if he has to start drinking, stop drinking. And then I tell him right now, don't change anything. He says, but all the guys that I get drunk with are in the front row of Juma. Anybody remember the story? Well, anyway, that's Ahant. Okay, Ahant. Uh, yeah, well, uh, yeah, yeah what an intro. Story? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so let's just say, for example, you have a negative, you know, you know, perception like of the ummah, or, or like you don't like how a sub section of the ummah is sort of, you know, uh, their their attitude sort of towards like worship. Yeah. So like, what are the like steps to like reconcile these feelings, and uh, and what's an appropriate way to, you know, approach Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala with these feelings? Yeah, wonderful question, Michelle. So. Uh, one of the wonderful things about the Ummah, as well as one of the struggles of the Ummah, is the diversity, not just of sizes and shapes and colors and all of that, but also outlooks and approaches to Islam. And you will come across people whose approach to Islam does not, to put it politely, does not work very well with you. Now, if it's prayer time, you all should pray together. If it's a matter of courtesy, you should be courteous with everybody. But in the same way that I like hanging out with these friends more than those friends, that's what you do with the Ummah itself, right? Meaning, what do you owe the members of the Ummah? You owe them courtesy. And then when it's time to pray, you don't separate yourself. That's the core of it. 
But yeah, it may be that okay, when they, they're all even here, I'll give you real, real world examples. When the elder relatives on both sides of my family, my mother's side of the family, my father's side of the family, when they all, they all start talking religion, I get out of the room as fast as I possibly can. You know? Because, I mean, they've pontificate and I love them and all that stuff. But at some point, they require me to become the arbiter of truth and such. And I want to instead say, you guys are talking about things that I stopped thinking about when I was in seventh grade, right? You know, you're speaking about these big, big issues and such, right? And so, so the point is that they're still my relatives. They're still my uncles and aunts. I love them thoroughly. And I visit them, not as much as I should. But the point is that uh, I get my Islamic stimulation from other places. Let me know if this makes sense. Um, yeah, I mean, um, you know, it, it's sort of hard to like, you know, like, for example, like if you see uh, a vast majority of the Ummah, you know, like, especially, you know, the weather, like it be here in Chicago or during the US, like, you know, broadly, uh, you know, in, in having like an outlook that you don't vibe with, um, you know, is it? you that's the the problem or you know like uh, i feel like i can't like make the connection of how that you know like equals to viewing myself you know that yeah. way so okay so when i'm making a lot of claims about the in america um i'm totally acknowledging i could be a complete wrong uh but i also do a lot of research on the in america right especially the in chicago and, and so the question would be, uh, what would be an example or even a hypothetical example that the vast majority of the Ummah seems to do that you have a problem with? And, um, and this is not something you need to answer right now, but a, a point to think about, you know, because a lot of times the vast majority of the Ummah might be, <laughs> might be the, the loud people in the MSA. You know, so even if you, we think of the, the common campus MSA, uh, usually, uh, no matter where we go, at most, it might be 20% of the people who self-identify uh, as Muslim that are in any capacity active with the MSA. And then of those 20%, there's a handful of people that are the loud people that, try, that run everything. And either they run it as an ultra-conservative place, as an ultra-liberal place, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so uh, the vast majority of the Ummah might be the loud people, you know, uh, as opposed to the, uh, the actual Muslims. You know. I don't know if this helps in terms of, of your reflection on all this. Umar, yeah, Umar Ali is making a study for all of us or is he making a study for himself? I think, uh, so for example, if we use Malahat as an example, who's doing a good job of paying attention to everyone else, but not the class material. I got I to admit that, yeah, I was watching Omar make his, his uh, you know, I'm very it's well. so okay. Omar is doing a great job. Yeah, mashallah. Only when the camera's on, right? Yeah. Okay, so uh, uh, Ahant, what do you think? So I would suggest potentially it might be a statement more about ourselves than about the ummah itself. So, so do you think that, you know, 
for example, if you view the diuma as having a certain like negative like you know quality, uh, see, does that mean you have that negative you know inequality like yourself? I mean, like isn't I mean the, the fact that you dislike the quality shouldn't that like mean you do that that like that like you think that you're not exhibiting that quality? So. Uh, we do have a narration attributed to the prophet, peace upon him, where he says that believers are mirrors of each other. And then rumor, uh, Rumi uh, uh, argues that when you see a flaw in someone else, it's actually in you. So the idea here in, in, in psychology would be projection. So the first thing to check when you see something that, you know, you think is a flaw in the ummah is to see, is that in you? Sometimes that might even be difficult to see because we don't want to believe that that is in us. But that would be the first place to look, yes. Which then means what? <clears throat> that a treatment for myself is to think better of the ummah as a way to treat my own heart. So how the Amar bin Maruf can I fit in there? Well, that's about specific actions. You know, calling to what is right, forbidding what is wrong is... If there's actually wrong actions taking place, then you have to speak about it. But I mean, I mean, uh, even like uh, uh, think of whatever the stereotypes are of the ummah that uh, that we're a bunch of patriarchs. I think that's a sign of someone who has no experience in the deep community. Yeah. Uh, I do think there's a serious problem of patriarchy. Uh, I do think there's also a serious problem of mediocrity um, uh, in huge portions of the Ummah. Yeah. Uh, but the fundamental problem I would suggest by and large is that uh, this is the amount of people in the Ummah that are doing the work of the Ummah when you need, right, you know, think of how far my hands can stretch out when you need that many people to do the work of the Ummah. And so even in Chicago, if we look at Islam in Chicago, if we're talking, if we include all the Sunday school teachers and all the people who have any level of, of activity with the local Islamic center, uh, I think I'm exaggerating if I say it's 500 people. But let's say for the sake of argument, let's say it's, it's um, 2,000 people yeah. uh, serving a population that is allegedly 400,000 people. Yeah. Matt doesn't work meaning the sheer uh, amount of work that needs to be done just for in the realm of, for example, education. Uh, only a small amount of people are actually you know, coming forward and doing the work. And, and so uh, the point being that in that case, uh, calling to what is right, forbidding what is wrong would be to urge people to get more active in the community. Any thoughts? Any other thoughts? Ahant Malahat, anyone else? Sorry, I accidentally muted you, Ahant. No, that, that's, that's great, actually, because um, I think Abdullah or Mahan mentioned the I earlier, right? That you can go against yourself, even if it's against yourself, right? That if the judge the truth. So if you can combine with that and what you just said about the moment is the mirror of each other. And the picture is complete. Sure. Okay. Okay. We are now at 5:40, and so what was the core of today's class? The core of today's class was really to look at three things: how do you truly perceive a law in your heart? 
and understand that affects how you perceive of reality. Number two, how do you perceive of the ummah? And that's more of a statement about yourself. And number three, how do you perceive of Islam? And how you perceive of Islam will affect in the long term how you practice Islam. It'll affect you all the time. But <clears throat> the point is, look at these three big things. We can add, although we didn't get to it, how you perceive of the Prophet, peace be upon him, uh, in your world, you perceive the prophet as an unsatisfied Desi uncle, you know, whom you can never make happy. And what I've been suggesting over and over again is literally look at the prophet, peace be upon him, as the ultimate manifestation of the Rahmah on, on my life, your life, yeah. which is already saying Rahmah is being poured upon me, but the prophet, peace be upon him, is the high point of that. Okay, if there are no other questions, we will stop right here and continue, inshallah, tomorrow. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta nastafiruka natubi lake. Subhanakallahumma, glory to you, O Allah, wa bihamdika, praise and gratitude to you. Nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta, we bear witness there is no God but you. Nastafiruka, we seek your forgiveness. And we turn to you. Okay, may Allah Ta'ala reward you all, inshallah. And I know we're getting to that point about a week into the fasting where now the real you is going to start getting exposed. And that's the funnest time to go to Tarabi, you know, in a non-COVID environment because that's when all the uncles start yelling at everybody. Okay, in any case, see you all tomorrow.